These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. The Hittite Empire fell suddenly by world historical standards. A person born at the peak of Hittite wealth and prosperity would have survived to see it all fall apart, assuming they survived that falling apart process. Way back in Season 1, we spent 22 episodes with the Hittites, sort of a detour that I hadn't really planned. There was just more and more story for them the more I learned, and I don't blame anyone for whom the details may be a bit fuzzy, but for today you don't really need the details, just the general sense of what the Hittite Empire was to frame what came after when it collapsed. Shortly before 1200 BCE, the borders of the Hittite Empire comprised, as a general approximation, the borders of modern-day Turkey and modern-day Syria, with some Lebanon and a bit of Israel thrown in, minus some other bits. It's all good. These borders were always extremely provisional, and it wasn't a territorial state in the same way that modern states are. Indeed, it was probably less of a territorial state than its Bronze Age peers, like Egypt and Kassite Babylon. Instead, it was far more of what we might call feudal in nature. There were perhaps hundreds of tiny polities, from regional kingdoms to collections of villages to individual towns and even nomadic tribes, each with a leader who was bound by treaty to the Hittite king, or bound to a middle leader who was, in turn, bound to the Hittite king. Now, variations of this pattern existed throughout the region, but the Hittites seemed to lean on it much more heavily than other nations. So long as a vassal nation provided taxes and troops, maintained peace, and proclaimed their submission to the great king, there was very little asked of them, and very little of what we might th often think of as empire building. The imperial language of Neshite was all things considered are not that widely adopted. The religion of the Hittites was usually a minor addition to the local pantheon, and indeed, as the Hittite Empire conquered, we saw the culture far more radically influenced by the conquered people than the conquerors. First, the Hurrian culture became fashionable in the court and high society, and at the end of the Hittite Empire, the Luwian languages of southern Anatolia seem to have often taken a status at least equal to the official Neshite language of the king himself. Because of all this, what looks to a historian like a massive collapse and region-defining epoch in the end of the Hittite Empire appears to have had in it far more continuity than might seem on the surface. But we'll get to that. We're baking the cake that's going to rise up and become the Neo-Hittite kingdoms. And the actual Hittite empire is only one of many ingredients. Next up, we can reach into our metaphorical pantry and pull out a long-anticipated ingredient into our story. The famous and mysterious Sea Peoples. Now, if you Google search the phrase, who were the Sea People? You're going to get about a thousand articles and videos with that exact title and many more on the same topic with ever so slightly cleverer names, but they will all tell you the exact same thing. The Sea People came from the Mediterranean Sea. 
No one knows exactly where, and in 1177 BCE they attacked Egypt, then later they invaded Canaan, crushing the Hittite Empire along the way. The end. There is, by the way, a slightly better book with the title 1177 BC by Eric Klein, which is quite readable and does a good job contextualizing the Bronze Age collapse. But by looking at the Bronze Age collapse and by looking at the Sea People invasion as incidents with a start and end, rather than the culmination of what came before and the foundation for what comes after, the whole Sea People thing really seems way more mysterious than it really is. First off, though, we have to address the question of where the Sea People come from. And here the standard story is more right than they often give themselves credit for. Very few people that I've read will simply say, oh, we have no idea where these guys come from. Rather, they're going to list off a number of potential options and then say, oh, with so many options, who knows which one is right? But let's start and look at these options first. I'm not going to carefully enumerate the names of all the known sea peoples because every list is a little bit different. With nothing but names, we're so often left just grasping at whether we're looking at the name of a large cultural group or a relatively small collection of tribes. Uh, playing pin the homeland on the Peliset, or pouring over histories for every incidental mention of the Jekker peoples, it's worthwhile for a professional historian, but it's not really one of those things we need for the overall narrative. Anyway, the most exotic theories of the Sea People origins, of course discounting ideas of ancient aliens or Atlantis or other, let's be honest, nonsense, is that at least some of the named groups come from Bronze Age cultures in the Western Mediterranean, perhaps the coast of modern-day France or Spain, and that they, passed, they paused in Sardinia and Sicily long enough to leave a mark over there. Now, that's not impossible, but neither is it certain. There certainly were people over there, and they certainly knew how to make ships, and the Mediterranean is calm enough to sail from one end to the other in good weather. But on the other hand, Bronze Age Europeans, for all that they've been studied for decades now, simply were not an historical people. All we know about them comes from archaeology, and archaeological similarities between one group and another are often far too tenuous to prove something absolutely. Moving then southward, there is some talk that they could have come from the northern coast of Africa, but there isn't much to say about this. Certainly there were people in North Africa, but there's even less known about them, because of course the European archaeologists care less about North Africans than they do about Europeans. It's great, but there's also less connecting those people to our sea people, and so it's hard to say anything for sure about this. The next source is the Northern Balkans, a region which we know was experiencing some pretty significant population movements around this time. And these folks are almost certainly related to the doom of the Mycenaean Greeks, again at around the same time. So why couldn't they have also popped in and pillaged the Levant? 
related to that. All those Mycenaean Greeks, now no longer under any Mycenaean king, well, they had to go somewhere once they got defeated by the Northerners. I mean, they could have gone somewhere. Greek adventurers, they're hardly an unknown phenomenon, both in history and in their many, many stories. Right under Greek Greece, of course, are the Libyans on the opposite end of the Mediterranean. And we know quite specifically that certain of the Sea People groups were groups of Libyans, because the Egyptians were super familiar with these neighbors and complained about them in particular. And finally, among the moniker of Sea Peoples, at least, some of them could also have been various Anatolian groups coming off the collapse of the Hittite Empire, or, prior to that, displaced by all the fighting up there in the decades prior. The people of Cyprus, Crete, and the Aegean Islands would fall into eh, kind of sort of these categories as well. Now, sometimes you're going to hear the Amorites listed as Sea Peoples or other desert nomad groups, the, Su the Suhu or the Habiru or various other people, the Sataeans. But of course, while these were definitely part of the overall climate of destruction, they were coming from the wrong direction to actually be Sea Peoples. Let's just put that out there. Hopefully, someone on YouTube is listening. Anyway, uh, do we know which of these options was the myth mythical, mysterious, single source of the Sea Peoples? Well, it turns out that it actually isn't all that mysterious, at least not from my perspective over in the Middle East, because the answer is that the Sea Peoples were probably pretty much all of these groups, and possibly even more. Though possibly not Northwest Africans, that one does seem the shakiest. Uh, but when we come to that conclusion, a lot of people start to look super skeptically at what we've just cited. After all, how could Bronze Age people, many of whom were illiterate, all the way across the Mediterranean, Black Sea, Balkans, Caucasus Mountains, and Anatolia, plus the desert folk, how could they all communicate well enough to coordinate a massive invasion, all at the same time, and apparently as a complete surprise to the multiple empires being invaded? After all, Christian Europe would attempt a similar feat in the Middle Ages, with all the advantages of being 2,000 years in the future, and they would find themselves far less successful than these Sea Peoples. But you see, that's the key to our supposed mystery. There was no coordination. The Sea Peoples were not one group. They weren't united in any sense at all. The only source that seems to consistently portray them as united are the Egyptians. And we have reasons to think that this is just the Egyptian propaganda, or alternately, that these groups came across each other, and some of them would form temporary alliances, none of which seem to have lasted long enough to leave more than a single record in history. Why do we know this? Because no one ever mentions a later combined territory of multiple peoples, with the single possible exception of the Twelve Tribes of Israel, a subject which will not definitely not be discussed today. But once the Hittites and Egyptians withdraw from the Levant, we see that what's left is a fragmented, fractured political landscape 
oddly just like what came before, but with new cities and new borders, and much less literacy, and way too much infighting to build anything significantly stable for like two centuries. But how could it be that people from all over the region simply happened to start moving at about the same time? And why were they so hostile? Now, almost certainly, we're looking at the ultimate result of a large-scale famine and social collapse in Europe just a bit before this Bronze Age collapse. All of these people would become the Sea Peoples, as well as the many other folks moving around at this time, and they were likely feeling the sting of hunger in their own homelands. Now, many of them probably stayed in their homes and died and just got lost to history. Others migrated north or in other directions, just not towards the sea and not towards the Middle East. And some of them may have died from starvation, or they may have found some measure of success far away from where anyone could record their prehistoric period. Only the ones that went out into the Mediterranean Sea and then subsequently arrived in Egypt, Anatolia, Greece, or places nearby happened to get recorded creating the illusion that, oh, everyone's just going in the same direction. It's just because we can't see the people going in other directions. And, of course, they were near universally seen as hostile because the ones that weren't hostile, just simply moving through without interacting much with the locals, well, they're going to be ignored in such a tumultuous period. Those who decided to fight to take whatever land they found, well, they're, of course, they're hostile. And those who may have had peaceful intentions when entering, but weren't welcomed by the locals who were facing their own struggles, of course, well, they would have been attacked. And, of course, that looks like a hostile invasion to the locals, even if it is the locals that started the fight, because it's the locals writing down history. And once some number of people start moving and fighting, well, that pushes out other people and creates even more famine and hardship, causing communities which may otherwise have stayed put to also start moving. Just a few simple rules of human behavior, pushed by a wide-scale famine, is enough to produce everything we see in the Sea Peoples. While we may speculate about the identity and origin of any particular people group among this wild movement, the Sea Peoples as a whole, to my mind at least, are not terribly mysterious at all, but I think they're far more interesting because of it. And so with that, we turn our attention back to Anatolia. While the men in ships get all the attention down in Egypt, the Hittites have a number of overland crossings to contend with. Most notably, they'd always been fighting the Cascans of northern Anatolia and the Caucasus Mountains, and these are the proximate cause of the destruction of Hattusha, the Hittite capital city. But at the same time, other groups are coming over the Bosporus from the Balkans, and yet other groups are raiding the western and southern coastlines. Each invasion is like a billiard ball smacking in other billiard balls until the whole table is a whirl of motion. And this is how we get Luwians down in Egypt, Cascans over in Assyria, and how the Philistines come from wherever they came from, maybe Greece or Crete, which is 
the leading theory nowadays, and into the land that would later be claimed by Israel. And with all that, we have the ingredients to bake our Neo-Hittite cake. Right around 1200 BCE, the last great king of the Hittites, Shepiliuma II, evacuates the capital ahead of a Kaskin horde, and vanishes from history. Now, all these various peoples who had once given fealty to the Hittite crown are suddenly, de facto, independent. There weren't any real bonds holding them to their neighbors, and they all start to do just whatever they want. Some of these polities just sit right where they are and try to fight off all the various invaders. Some of these are unsuccessful and die off, while others are successful and found post-Hittite Anatolian states, most of which get lost to history anyway as later, more successful states take over. Others either voluntarily leave ahead of some threat, or due to the more general famine, while others get pushed out after being defeated by one of these other billiard ball peoples bouncing around the region. Now, in the abstract, we've just described pretty much everyone who's going to come to occupy Anatolia, the Caucasus region, Syria, and the Levant in the early Iron Age. But, of course, the specifics of each case differ slightly. Sometimes we can tell you that story, a lot of the time we can't. With the Neo-Hittite states, what we see is that at the time of the collapse of the central authority with the fall of Hattusha, the various vassals of Syria, and sort of into southeastern, what we now call southeastern Turkey, it's a pretty wide region, what we see is that these vassals are as of yet relatively unaffected by the chaos that had pulled down the kingdom. And you'll recall from our series on the Hittites that the Syrian cities of Aleppo and Carchemish were so significant that they were ruled by a branch of the imperial royal house, though by this point there are many generations from the original split. The boundary between Hittite and Neo-Hittite occurred in Carchemish, though we're hard-pressed to put a date on it more firm than somewhere around 1200. The last Hittite viceroy of the city, according to written documents in Carchemish, was Talmiteshub. His son was the first great king of Carchemish, Kuziteshub. Now, whether Talmiteshub took royal honors at the end of his life, or if Kuziteshub began as a viceroy and elevated himself, the pattern is pretty clear that even though the Hittites in Hattusha were at this point gone, the people in the area generally liked a lot of the trappings of the Hittite Empire, and whatever their local affiliations were at this point quite used to being considered as Hittites by foreigners. And so the viceroy, being of the royal house and already quite used to producing Hittite royal inscriptions in his local propaganda, well, he simply continued the Hittite empire in miniature. Most interestingly, at the time of this transition, a number of states in Syria appear to have maybe gone along with it, and other states may have been conquered in a bid to rebuild the Hittite empire. After all, the Hittites had risen like phoenixes a few times before, so it must have seemed possible, at least in theory. 
But whatever sorts of diplomatic and military efforts accompanied Kuzi Teshub's claim of kingship, reality seems to have set in pretty quickly. Karchemish ultimately contented itself with Karchemish and the surrounding region. Aleppo ultimately ruled Aleppo and the surrounding region. And the kingdom of Malatia, likely once part of Karchemish and ruled by one of Kuzi Teshub's relatives, also peacefully occupied its own region. Now, the outline of this all is very hard to make out in this period. There's some sense that all, or at least many, of the Neo-Hittite kingdoms, while effectively independent, still acted as if they were fellow vassals of equal rank, operating under a unified kingdom, and possibly aligning themselves with the great king of Karchemish. But how together they were, and for how long, and how many participated in this provisional system is hard to say. This is the sort of thing which could potentially have evolved into a more significant unified state under the leadership of a powerful king, or which could have ultimately fallen apart under weak rulers. But history was not allowed to take its natural course, or at least these people weren't allowed to go forward unmolested. And it was less than a century before Tiglath-Pileser I appeared in Assyria and began his surge of conquests. We saw a few episodes ago how he basically just reached out and murdered as many people as he could find for years and years, and in his fifth year we noted his great campaign all the way out to the Levantine coast, first attacking the Mushki people, then going to Lebanon for a collection of cedar wood and to hunt a whale. It was on his way back that he mentions passing through Hittite land and subduing all of it. This was, as far as we can tell, bloodless, more or less. The Assyrian army was simply passing through Hittite Syria, and Ini Teshub, a descendant of Kuzi Teshub, was asked to pay fealty to Tiglath-Pileser. It took only one look at the Assyrian army, not even the swing of a sword, to convince him, and essentially all of the fledgling Syrian states, to submit to Assyria. Now, we imagined before a child born at the height of the Hittite Empire just before the fall. In the chaos that followed, the heyday of the Late Bronze Age must have seemed like a dream, and anything like the great king in Karchemish, which echoed that prosperity, must have been attractive indeed. Now we can imagine the next generation working hard to rebuild a new order, with all sorts of new kinds of people arriving and attacking regularly, wondering if that old Hittite order can be rebuilt, or if it'll all fall apart. You still have the stories of Labarna, Hattushili, and Shapiliuma rebuilding Hattiland from nothing, and you wonder if this Initeshub fellow has the same sort of gumption as those heroes of old, only to discover one day that there's nothing your impotent region could do to fight against the power of Tiglath-Pileser over in Assyria, and all at once any dreams of a rebuilt Hittite empire collapse around your ears. And then, though we may need to posit another imaginary descendant here, Tiglath-Pileser dies, and quite without warning, the entire region of Syria is free from Mesopotamian influence until Ashurnasirpal in the 800s BCE. 
Not that they're free of all outsiders, the billiards table will keep bouncing around for centuries to come, until the great empires finally come in and stamp it all out. But with the end of the, a short generation of Assyrian influence, the people who were once Hittites will never again seriously attempt to rebuild the great Anatolian Empire. They will still take on the name of Hittite. They will still make inscriptions in the style of the late Hittite Empire, though mostly with the hieroglyphic Luwian language rather than the cuneiform Neshli of Hattusha. And they will maintain some distinctive Hittite cultural and material features. For the entire Bronze Age, or Middle and Late Bronze Age, Hittite was an empire ruling over countless tiny cultures, mostly in Anatolia. But for the Iron Age, Hittite will be a culture shared by numerous kingdoms and tribal groups spread around the Levantine region. The thread from one to the other can be traced by those who care to look, but in many ways the Neo-Hittites are so different from the Imperial Hittites as to be a different people. Now all that said, the Americans of the 21st century and the Americans of the founding generation are also different in many respects, yet that continuous cultural self-identification through all the changes makes the Hittites, in some sense, all the same people. Now with all this in mind, we get to perhaps the most significant thing that modern people care about with regards to the Neo-Hittites. Why do they show up in the Bible? The answer, of course, is that with Hittite becoming an almost ethnic designation, or not even almost, sometimes it's just an ethnic designation, for a number of settled communities and mobile tribes, and with the chaos of the Bronze Age collapse pushing people all over the Near East, it's no surprise that we see self-described Hittite communities appearing in the region of Canaan during the 12th to 10th centuries. This is south of the region generally described as Neo-Hittite, but it is a chaotic time and there's every reason to expect groups of Hittites in Canaan during the period of the Exodus, Joshua, and Judges, and into the Kingdom period. As to the kingdoms themselves, they begin to grow after Tiglath-Pileser's death, and while I could list off the names of some of the kingdoms that we know about, it really is a bit like counting Pokemon. Many of them are little more than names. The one we know something about are usually just kingdoms that we can attach the names of particular kings to. Those kings, of course, are mostly little more than names themselves, and a few show up more often than others. Karchemish, Aleppo, and Malatia being three of the most notable. But there isn't much narrative that can be drawn through any of the kingdoms. Many of them we see for the first and last times as they're being conquered by the Assyrians. But we can draw out two Neo-Hittite threads before abandoning them largely to be conquered, in terms of how they were affected by the regional trends wherever they happen to be located. Now, one we haven't really focused on today is the portion of Hittites not in Syria, but in southern Anatolia. Now, they're a bit west of the more successful Syrian Hittite kingdoms. Here, we might remember that in the waning years of the Hittite Empire, 
One of the great dramas was when Hattusili III took the throne from his nephew Mershili III. We mostly focused on Hattusili's reign because it was far more important, but Mershili was not killed in that succession crisis, and instead he managed to flee to the southern city of Tarhantasha, a former capital of the empire, and managed to break off the region around that city, and he was never properly reconquered, at least as far as we can tell, and it looks like he may have survived the fall of the Hittite empire completely. Well, not him, he would have been dead, but his descendants and his little kingdom. Now, this rump state was no Byzantium, gloriously surviving the main empire, but it did manage to hang on for an uncertain number of centuries afterwards, claiming legitimacy as the true heir to the Hittite empire. Now, this never appears to have manifested in a great burst of conquest, or at least not successful conquest, but it would have played in regional disputes considering the rival claims of Karchemish, and it appears to have promoted the idea of Hittite legitimacy in neighboring states, spreading the area that claimed to be Hittite into the Iron Age. How did this all play out in terms of regional struggles for dominance? Ah, uh, we have no idea. We can barely reconstruct that the Neo-Hittite kingdom in Tarhuntasha was in fact descended from Mershili, and getting too far beyond that is simply beyond the evidence. The other thread to follow is back in Syria among the Aramaeans. Now over in Assyria, we've just barely seen the first of the Aramaeans, though surely not the last of them. But here in the West, these Western nomads are, perhaps obviously, a larger factor. The early interactions between the Neo-Hittites and the Aramaeans are shrouded, and pretty clearly there was at least a certain amount of Aramaeans conquering cities involved in that interaction. At the same time, though, we see that many of the cities which are not conquered by Aramaeans experience a large amount of Aramaean migration. And as far as we can tell, much of this migration is completely peaceful and ends with the Aramaeans building their own place in Neo-Hittite society. They don't appear to integrate completely in a way that wipes out the Aramaean identity, and indeed the success of the Aramaeans in general suggests that it is the smaller identities being assimilated into the larger Aramaean fold, where they're not just overwhelmed and wiped out, but the peaceful coexistence with both Aramean communities and Aramean immigrants is a defining feature of the Neo-Hittite states in Syria. It's part of what makes reading into the Neo-Hittites so complicated, that we have Hittite groups with large Aramean cultural additions, right next to towns ruled by Arameans but full of Luwian speakers who may have identified as Hittite right next to Aramean towns that have adopted certain Hittite ways in their royal epigraphy. And that's not to say anything about the mishmash of other groups who found their way into the Levant. When looking through those, it really does bring to mind the biblical listings of the people in Canaan before Israel. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and all the rest. 
Now, some of these names we recognize, some we don't. Just as future historians of the United States in a few thousand years will likely be able to name some, but not all, of the football and baseball teams that are so popular in our own era. But speaking of the Bible, there isn't actually all that much more that can be said about the Neo-Hittites. They existed. They kind of descended from the Hittite Empire. They will exist in a sort of dark age, likely because they're writing a lot of their stuff in Aramaic on perishable materials instead of clay tablets, and also because they live in Syria and the Levant, which has been more continuously inhabited over the years. And then they get conquered by the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Which brings us finally to the time a lot of you have been waiting for the series of episodes in which I look at the historicity of the Old Testament, specifically the story of the Exodus and the founding of the Kingdom of Israel. Then we'll look at historical Israel's place in Near Eastern history. It's going to be difficult. There's a lot of nonsense to wade through and not a lot of hard evidence to base it all on, but I'm going to do my best to be reasonable here. So join us next time as we start the project with a look at the earliest foundations of extra-biblical evidence for ancient Israel and a discussion on the main sets of perspectives on historical Israel, which we're going to be talking about for a long, long time. Thank you for listening.